So, Lord, we love you, and we anticipate what you're going to do, and we thank you in advance in Christ's name. Amen. So, generally speaking, the book of 1 Corinthians, right, is a, is a letter written to, sadly, a very selfish church. It's a very selfish church. They thought of themselves as individuals before they thought of the community, of the body of the believers. They were more interested in what they could get, generally speaking, than what they could give. And if they were interested in giving, they were interested in giving so that they could be recognized for it and how great they really were. Uh, We're dealing with social and personal interactions in the first four chapters, and so this is kind of the last week in that section of the book. And chapter number four specifically deals with the issue of leadership. And so in the first verses, first 13 verses coming through, we've talked about the description of biblical leadership, and we talked about some qualities of biblical leadership, and those are the things that we've seen leading up to this point. And today, we're starting in verse number 14, and we're going to the end. And what Paul's going to be talking about in this section is the title of today's message, The Biblical Model for Ministry Training. How do we produce effective biblical leaders? You see, training for ministry, training for leadership is critically essential because what it does is, is it equips and mobilizes more laborers into the field. Amen? Uh, You know, church should be more than just having services on Sunday, don't you think? Uh, We should be about giving you the essential tools that you need so that you can take the Word of God and you can go out and make a difference in this world as well. And if that's going to happen effectively, then we're going to need to understand what God's trying to communicate to us in this passage of Scripture. And what we're going to see are two key elements for ministry training. So if you'll just follow along, I'm going to read, starting in verse 14 and down to the end of the chapter. He says, I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. For though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet have you not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Wherefore, I beseech you, be followers of me. For this cause, I have sent unto you Timotheus, who's my beloved son and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways, which be in Christ, as I teach everywhere in every church. Now some are puffed up as though I would not come to you. But I will come to you shortly, if the Lord will, and will know not the speech of them which are puffed up, but the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. What will ye? Shall I come unto you with a rod, or in love, and in the spirit of meekness? So Paul definitely has some interaction with this church, and he's dealing with some issues. (coughs) Excuse me. And the two key elements are what we're going to be looking at in our two main points of our outline. The first one is biblical ministry training, the way the Lord would intend it, should be parental. Parental. Yes, I got that word right, parental. Now, that's important. Your training in the ministry should be parental. What does that exactly mean? Well, we're going to see that in a second. This is a big deal. Why is this such a big deal? Well, it's a big deal because this is exactly what most ministry training is not. It's exactly what most ministry training models is not. So what Paul is doing as he introduces this section is, He's addressing the Corinthians as a father talking to his sons in the faith. By the way, this would be one key passage where the Roman Catholic Church goes to to defend their idea that the priests should be called fathers. Now that's erroneous because Paul just refers to these people as his sons in the faith and Jesus specifically said, call no man on earth your father in a religious context. But Paul says, I am like your father and we will see this as we come through it. He refers to them in verse 14 as my beloved sons. And we started off in verse 14, which is obviously a continuation of the previous verses. And he says, I write not these things. Well, what are these things? Well, it could be all of chapter 4, but I think most specifically in context is verses 11 to 13. Let's just remind ourselves of these things in verses 11 to 13 where he's defending who he is and his lifestyle and the qualities and characteristics of a real godly leader, and specifically referring to the apostles, he says in verse 11, Even unto this present hour we both hunger and thirst, 
and are naked and are buffeted and have no certain dwelling place and labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we suffer it, being defamed, we entreat. We are made as the filth of the world and are the offscouring of all things unto this day. That description of true sacrificial ministry leadership is not attractive. It's not attract. It's not the kind of thing that gets people to come down front in mass and just sign up and say, "Here am I, send me." But Paul's being very brutally honest as a father to his children. This is what will happen if you sign up to really surrender your whole life to make disciples of the whole world. And he goes on then on the heels of that description of the suffering that is associated with leadership. And he says in verse 14, I'm not writing these things to you to shame you. I'm not writing these things to you if you haven't experienced these things like you ought to feel bad about your comfortable life. That's not the reason I'm writing them to you. I'm writing them to you, he says, to warn you. I need to warn you. And that's what's important. So the first part of the parental instruction that's coming our way is letter A, the warning. The warning. You know, we say, like father, like son. Uh, Paul suffered in his ministry. We saw that last time. And he's saying, so will you if you follow in my steps. This is the kind of thing you can expect. Like father, like son. Jesus said the same thing, right, in John chapter 15, verse 20 where he said unto his disciples, Remember the word that I said unto you, The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they've persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And if they've kept my saying, they'll keep yours also. And so Paul is a good parent, right? He often warns his children in the faith. We see that over and over again in different places. So for example, we see in Acts chapter 20 and verse 31 where he says this, Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I ceased not to warn everyone night and day with tears. And the context of Acts chapter 20, when Paul is dealing with the church in Ephesus, he is warning them of wolves that will enter into the the mix. They'll enter into the sheepfold, and they're going to try and destroy the body of the church. They're going to appear as shepherds, but they're false shepherds. They're wolves in sheep's clothing, and they're going to do damage to the community of the body of the church. And he says, I did not cease to warn you for the space of three years to watch out for those rascals. That's what a good parent does. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 28, he says again, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom. Why? That we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. You understand the Bible usage of the word perfect. It means to be mature, complete, grown, equipped. The context is, yes, training believers to full spiritual maturity, but the idea of the warning is, I'm warning you as we're trying to train you that there's coming a judgment day. There's coming a day when God will call all of us into account You need to be aware that that day is coming. I'm warning you. Get on board now, right? So there's something to that. There's something to the idea that he's saying, look, there's going to be suffering. I'm warning you that there's suffering in ministry. I'm warning you that there's issues that come up with wolves in sheep's clothing, and and you're going to give an account one day. But there's another specific application to this idea of warning that we find in the Scriptures, and that's in 1 Thessalonians 5, 14. When are we supposed to warn people? It says, now we exhort you, brethren, notice, warn them that are unruly. Now, if you find people who are feeble-minded, don't warn them. Give them comfort. If you find people who are just weak, don't warn them. Just support them. Oh, and by the way, be patient towards everybody. Amen. But when you find people that are unruly, Paul says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what you're supposed to do is warn them. You're supposed to warn them. Well, he's telling the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4, He's given them a warning. I wrote these things unto you to warn you. And he's warning them because, well, they're unruly. Well, we're going to look a little more at this idea of what it means to be unruly. Actually, it only appears four times in your Bible. One of them is right here. 
One of them is Titus chapter 1 and verse number 6. We'll see the other two a little bit later, okay? And in Titus chapter 1, we're dealing with the biblical qualifications for bishops, okay? And it says in verse 6, If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children who are not accused of riot or unruly. So the understanding of the word unruly is riotous, out of control. So what's Paul doing? Paul is warning the Corinthians, hey, listen, real spiritual growth will bring real persecution. So what you need to do is you need to follow the rules of proper biblical training, proper biblical preparation. And so he reminds them as we continue down in the verses how to prepare for a fruitful life of ministry, to not be deceived by the wolves, to not be ashamed at that day of judgment, to get on board now. Because there is a biblical model for training men for ministry. That shouldn't surprise you. And this model is actually not what most people think it is, and that probably shouldn't surprise you either. So exactly what are the elements that we need to look at? Well, that's where we're going to go next. Letter B, the watch care. The watch care. Verse number 15 is where he begins, Though you have 10,000 instructors, yet have ye not many fathers. And so these are life lessons from a loving father, as opposed to just head knowledge from some professor. And he says, though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ. So the idea of the instructor, a mere classroom teacher, if you will, is contrasted with a father, somebody who has an actual personal relationship with you while you are being trained. Why is that? Well, it's easy. It's because you're not just students, you're sons. That's who you are. Yes, I understand that we are called to be disciples of Jesus Christ, and the word disciple literally means a student, a learner of Jesus Christ, but you are not just a student. You're a son. You're in the family. You're a part of the body, and that makes all the difference. Paul says, notice what he says. He uses some unusual language. I have begotten you through the gospel. I have begotten you? Well, that sounds strange, doesn't it? I have begotten you? Was it Paul that gave them eternal life? Well, no, of course it wasn't Paul that gave them eternal life. But let me just tell you what. A verse like this, Boy, that's tough to swallow for the Calvinists, isn't it? I mean, that's the death blow for Calvinism and unconditional election. Paul had something to do with those people getting saved? Really? I thought only God had anything to do with anybody getting saved, and you didn't even have anything to do with you getting saved. Only God did it all by himself, whether you wanted to or not. That's what they think. Of course, that's ridiculous. You look at verses like 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 22, where... Paul says that, man, I want to be all things to all men, that I might, by all means, what does he say? Save some. That I might save some. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? That's an interesting way to look at it. Well, obviously, the understanding comes within the context of the Scriptures. If we just pay attention to the words, he says, I have begotten you, here's the key, through the gospel. Of course, through the gospel. Paul uses this imagery to make a point, right? And he uses this imagery over and over in his writings. For example, in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 19, my little children of whom, notice, I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. I have travailed in birth when you came into new life and I continue to go through these birthing pains trying to help you grow into a mature believer. In the book of Philemon, one simple chapter, verse number 10, I beseech thee for my son Onesimus, notice, whom I have begotten in my bonds. What's he exactly saying? Well, we were both prisoners here, and while we were prisoners, I shared the gospel with him, and he got saved. 
So there is an element to the fact that Paul is the spiritual father of this brother who now gets saved, right? Onesimus. Uh, A little different take, but this kind of language is used over and over again. 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 11. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you how? As a father doth his children. That's how we behaved ourselves with you. We exhorted you and we comforted you and we charged you because that's what good fathers do. And Paul views his converts in the Lord as his sons in the faith. And he cares for them accordingly. He cares for them accordingly. You know, that's the benefit of true biblical ministry training. That's the benefit that you'll never get from a mere instructor. An instructor is never going to care for you that way. An instructor is never going to give you that kind of love and care. An instructor is never going to have that kind of a personal relationship. An instructor is never going to offer for you the love and the comfort and the care and maybe even the charge to make sure that you do the right thing. That's what a father is going to do. Listen, can I just tell you, there are tons of people, there is no shortage of people that are out there in Christianity that are willing to take your sons in the faith and take them and to teach them the word of God more perfectly. I'm just telling you, I am so sick of charlatans doing that kind of thing all over the globe in ministry that I don't even, I don't even really want to you know, get started. I mean, the camera's rolling and I might embarrass myself. All the way back to when I first began our ministry in Albania in 1992, and I had the privilege of being among the first missionaries into this newly opened country, God did some great things, and a bunch of people got saved, and we began discipleship just like we do here, and a bunch of people grew. And then eventually, over time, other missionaries showed up, and I understand it took them time to raise their money to get there, and naturally, over time, more started showing up. But you know what I saw over and over again? These missionaries would come into town, and what they wanted was to fish in our church fish pond. And they wanted to pick the people out of our church, especially if they were males, young adults that spoke English and had already been through some level of discipleship, so that they would pay them some money to come work with them as their translator and lead their ministry, never once talking to me about whether we could cooperate and and maybe work together to help them in their new church. They just are sheep thieves. That's who they are. And by the way, you don't have to be in a foreign country to do that. There's ministries all over this country that that's what they do. They are scanning your churches and they are looking for your best and brightest so that they can cherry pick those people that you've labored and sweated. You cleaned their diapers. And now that they can walk okay on their own, now they want to cherry pick them out and teach them things more perfectly? That is not a biblical model, friends. It is not. Now i got to move on. <laughs> the word instructor, though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, you know, it's kind of written kind of like, that's not the best category to be in, right? You know that word instructor only appears one other time in your Bible? Just so happens to be negative. Romans chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, Paul is writing to unsaved religious Jews Right, The transition of the first century, they thought they had it all going on. They really didn't understand salvation in Christ. Romans 2.19, and he speaks to these guys, and, and art confident that thou thyself art a guide of the blind, a light of them which are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, which hast the form of knowledge and of the truth in the law. And he's rebuking them, saying, you think you got all that going on, and you really don't have any clue as to what you're doing. The blind are literally leading the blind. That's what's going on. Where do you suppose these instructors came from that Paul seems to have to keep warning people about? 
Well, I'm not exactly sure where they came from, but I got a funny feeling that they maybe came from Acts chapter 19 and verse number 9 where it says, But when divers were hardened and believed not, but spake evil of that way, we'll get to that in a second, before the multitude, he departed from them and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the, here it is, the only time ever mentioned in the Bible, the school of one Tyrannus. And it got so heated that Paul took his sons in the faith, the disciples, and he said, y'all just move along. Y'all just keep going. I'll handle this. And he continued to, what does he do in this school, as the Bible gives us the final authority of all matters of faith and practice? He argued with them. He spent all his time arguing with those guys. I don't know if that was a direct connection to what was going on in Corinth, but... That's the kind of thing he's talking about to the Corinthians, for sure. No question about it. And he's arguing about the subject that way. We'll get to that in a second. So what I want you to understand is this, that ministry education is ineffective when there's no personal relationship. Ministry education is ineffective when there is no personal relationship. But that's Christian education today. Just Google it. Read a book. Watch TV. Go to a seminar. Go to a Bible college. Hop around from church to church. Get what you can get with no regard whatsoever for others in the community of believers. So why exactly would that be a problem? Well, it's a problem because look back in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse number 6. Because it's thinking of men above that which is written. You're going to go around, and listen, it's fine. There's good books out there. It's fine. There's good seminars out there. But a lot of people just decide, well, my church is whatever online. I just stay at home. I just do this. I just listen to this. I like that guy's books. Yeah, but if you happen to bump into that guy in an elevator while you happen to be visiting New York City and he was at whatever, he wouldn't know you. He wouldn't know you from Adam. Hey, man, don't you know me? I've been following your teaching. He's like, yeah, okay, whatever. I'm late for dinner. I mean, he doesn't have a relationship with you. He doesn't know you. And that's the problem. There is no fatherly care. And that's why when Jesus Christ gave gifts of the Spirit to the church to lead the church, in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse number 11, among the list of gifts that are given, it says, pastors and teachers. And that's together in one. The pastor is to be a teacher, and the teacher is to be a pastor. Do you understand that? They are pastors and teachers together. There should not simply be instruction where there is no shepherding. And if all you do is sit in a classroom, if all you do is read a book, and you think you've got the understanding of, again, we're going to get to it, the way, well, you're mistaken. You're mistaken. You may have Bible knowledge. You may be able to quote verses. You may have passed all your exams. That does not mean that you are genuinely mature and capable of carrying out responsible ministry leadership. If you are a pastor of a church, you should be apt to teach the doctrines of the Scripture. Amen? And if you are a teacher of some Bible institute, you should be able to shepherd and have a relationship to shepherd the students that are under your care. But that's not the way it's done these days. Can I just ask you to think about your life and think about the life lessons that you may have learned from your dad? You know, your dad may not have been the most educated man. Maybe he was, but for a lot of us he wasn't. My dad was a blue-collar worker, good, honest, hard-working guy. He taught me those kinds of hard-working. Son, you work for everything you get. There's no free lunch. You don't take handouts. You don't lie. You treat your mother good. I mean, he taught me good life lessons, right? Listen, why did he do that? Because he loved me. Why does your father teach you the life lessons? Because he loves you. And he's trying to teach you how to live, even if he doesn't have all of the latest information. And you know what you could do? You could see how he lived. 
And you can see how that works out. Jesus said it this way, John chapter 10, starting in verse 11. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. But he that is an hireling and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, seeth the wolf coming and leaveth the sheep and fleeth. And the wolf catcheth them and scattereth the sheep. The hireling fleeth because he's an hireling and careth not for the sheep. So you need to understand the difference between a shepherd, a pastor, a father, and a hireling. So I made a simple layout for you in your notes. A shepherd is somebody who cares for others. By definition, you care for the sheep. A hireling is someone who just cares for himself. A shepherd is motivated by love. Why do we do the things that we do? We do these things because we have a relationship. We're invested. We care about you. We live life together with you. But a hireling is motivated by gain. A hireling is just a Bible word for an employee. A hireling is somebody who has been hired to get a job done. You quit paying him, he's done. It's over, right? You all have jobs and you go to work and I hope you enjoy your jobs. My guess is the day they quit paying you is the day you quit showing up. Generally, that would be the case. Because in your work to provide for your family, you do it for the income. Of course, that's fine. But in training people for ministry, that cannot be fine. A shepherd fights opposition. The wolves come in. David was a shepherd, a bear, and a lion. He fought them off, right? But Jesus said, no, not the hireling. Oh, a wolf's coming. I'm out. Every man for himself. You know, you know the old story. You don't need to be able to outrun the bear. You just need to be able to outrun the other guy. (laughs) Sorry for you, dude. (laughs) That's a hireling. That's a hireling. And Jesus warned them, saying, I am a good shepherd. I'm not a hireling. There's hirelings out there, and you need to watch it. That's the watch care of a parent. That's what you get. Instructors, mere instructors, they're like hirelings. They don't care about you. They're earning a salary by selling you information. In fact, that's all they have to offer, information. That's it. But you know what the Father offers you? The Father offers you, letter C, and we're finally here now, the way. He offers you the way. Now the word way, let me just make it real simple for us. It literally just means a path right? So we see in Psalm 25, verse 4, show me thy ways, O Lord, teach me thy paths. The Bible's self-defining. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 10, hear, O my son, here we go, and receive my sayings, and the years of thy life shall be many. I have taught thee in the way of wisdom. I have led thee in right paths. A way is a path. It's not just an event. It's a journey. It's a lifestyle. It's a continuation. It's a path. It's a process. That's what it is. So biblical ministry training teaches Paul's ways. That's what it teaches. And if we look back in our text, it says, Wherefore I beseech you, be followers of me. For this cause I have sent unto you Timotheus, who is my beloved son, and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways, which be in Christ, as I teach everywhere in every church. So we are commanded to follow the example of the Apostle Paul over and over and over again in the New Testament in so much as Paul is following the Lord, right? So fast forward to chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, right? Where he says, be followers of me, even I also am a follower of the Lord. So obviously that's the understanding. He says in Philippians 3 and verse 17, brethren, be followers together of me. But not necessarily just the human being, Paul, he says, and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an ensample. In other words, pay attention to anybody out there, anybody at all, who will help you to learn the ways of Paul. Mark anybody out there who will help you to understand that we are your example. And one of the ways is what we saw in verses 11 to 13. There is 
the way of suffering, right? The way of suffering. We've already covered that. <coughs> Excuse me. So there's a couple of aspects that I want you to see in this, and the first one is, number one in your notes, of this ministry of Paul, and that it's propagated. This way is a way that is propagated. In other words, in order for you to be able to understand how to follow me, Paul, although he tells them later on, look, I'm, I'm planning on showing up. Lord willing, I'm going to show up. But I can't come right now, and your training can't wait, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send unto you Timotheus, my beloved son, and faithful in all of my ways. He's going to teach you my ways, just like I would teach you if I was there. You know what that does for the church in Corinth? They say, look, we get it. We need to follow the ways of Paul. Paul's not even here to do it. Oh, wait a minute. Paul sent his son, which is the same equivalent as Paul being there because Timothy's going to do exactly what Paul would have done if Paul was there doing it. So the very faith, the very ministry style, the very ways of Paul are demonstrated, they're exemplified in the fact that it's not Paul doing it. It's Timothy doing it for Paul. It shows that his ministry is a ministry of reproduction and propagation to other generations. That's biblical discipleship on display. That's why Paul writes to Timothy, right, in 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, the, the favorite discipleship verse, and the things that thou hast heard of me, Timothy, among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. In other words, the proof's in the pudding. You see, Paul is proving to the Corinthians, you know what, the system that I'm trying to teach you, it works. It works. Here's Timothy, for example. He's going to teach you the exact same things that I would teach you if I were there. Why is that? Not because Timothy was a really good student. It's because Timothy's my beloved son. He doesn't just know what I know. He has my heart. He understands how I lived. He lived it with me for a while. He's just like me. So Proverbs 22 has a whole new meaning, doesn't it? In verse 6, train up a child in the way. There it is, the way he should go. And when he's old, he'll not depart from it. So we train up our children as parents physically with our gifts from God, the children God's given to us. But yet spiritually as well, we are to train up our ministry children in the way. And that way is defined through the human example that God gave us to the Apostle Paul. Biblical discipleship training propagates new generations of trained leaders. You remember Acts 1.8? Acts 1.8, you should receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. You should be witnesses unto me. Notice, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and under the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, if you want to break down and analyze the structure of that sentence and the grammar and the words chosen, and by the way, that's a good thing to do when you study the Bible. He doesn't say that you'll receive power after the Holy Ghost comes on you, and you're going to be my witnesses. Whether you're in Jerusalem, or whether you're in Judea, or whether you're in Samaria, or wherever, wherever you happen to be even to the uttermost parts of the earth. Wherever you happen to be, that's where you're going to be my witnesses. He could have said that. That's not what he said. He said, you're going to be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all of these places. How in the world can the Lord really expect any of us to be in more than one place at the same time? Well, it's through biblical discipleship. It's through training your sons to be just like you. Paul is demonstrating how he can be in two places at the exact same time by sending his beloved son Timotheus, who's faithful, to go and to train the Corinthians while he's doing something else somewhere else. He's applying and living out the principle of Acts 1.8, one of the pillar verses of our understanding of the Great Commission, the very thing God left for us to do. I'm so proud to be a part of First Baptist Church. This church literally 
has trained at a minimum scores of men and women, if not hundreds, in a proper understanding of the Scriptures as we have cared for, generations before I came here, cared for the children in this church. I say that with love. The members of this church. And some of those members maybe weren't always willing to stick out the process until the end. And some of them maybe even got mad and left and went to some other churches. But you know what a lot of them are doing? They're taking the truth that they learned right here. And they're developing discipleship ministries and whatever it is they're doing in other places. Maybe not every departure was blessed, okay? But at the end of the day, how many churches out there, and by the way, spoiler alert, not many, are actually doing the work that this church has taken on to do. People are getting jobs in ministry all over this country who used to be a part of this ministry. Why? Because they learned the stuff here. I'm not trying to blow our horn. I'm trying to tell you we take this stuff seriously and we give it to you with love. I hope you follow the process right. I hope the Holy Spirit leads you every step of your life. But man, you got to get it. It's rare to find these days. The real way of the Lord, well, it's propagated. It continues on and on and on. But you know what else Paul's ways are? Well, number two, they're not, in other words, they're not popular. <laughs> they're not popular. Here's what Jesus said. Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is, here it is the way, that leads to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. There is a right way. There's a way that seems right unto a man, but that's not right. There is a right way, and it's a narrow way, and you're not just going to stumble across it. It says few there be that, oh, find it, which means you're looking for it. And I'm going to tell you, if you're looking for it, you'll find it. Because the Lord's going to help you find it. You know what? The way of true growth and development is always the less popular way. You've got to know that, right? I'm old enough to be able to say with some fair authority that all the good stuff is not popular. And all the popular stuff is not good. Right? Come on. Pop culture is not the good culture. There's real culture out there in the world, but it's not the pop culture, let me tell you. Uh, hey, kids, you know, pop music, I'm, I'm sorry, is not the good music. It's just popular now. Give it like two years. Nobody will even know who these bozos are. The good stuff lasts forever. There's wonderful artists out there. Can I just tell you? Popular Bible training is not the good Bible training. That's just the way it works. It's not popular. It's a narrow way. You have to be looking for it. You ought to write that down. <laughs> okay, listen. Here's what you need to understand. This is in your notes, so you're going to write this one down. The ways of the Lord reveal the whys of the Lord. I'm going to say that again. The ways of the Lord reveal the wise of the Lord. What do you mean? Well, look at this. Psalm 103, verse 7. Man, if you're going to highlight a verse in your Bible, Psalm 103, 7 is a great candidate. It says, He made known His ways unto Moses, His acts unto the children of Israel. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever noticed that God says that of all the things He did in the Old Testament, and while this psalm is written, they're differentiating the difference between what Moses understood and what the general believers and the children of Israel understood. The general population of believers and the children of Israel, of course God did miracles. He parted the Red Sea, fed them manna in the wilderness, and he made water come out of a rock, and he, he gave them the pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, and he did all these things for them. And the children of Israel said, man, our God did wonderful acts. We know about all of them. But Moses didn't just know the acts of the Lord. He knew his ways. Moses knew, in other words, why God did what he was doing. 
Have you ever noticed Christian people, they, they, we, we love to ask why questions about the Lord. It's natural that you would think that. Why does the Lord do this? Why would the Lord do that? Especially if there's tragedy in your life, why, Lord, does that happen? And frequently we don't get answers to the why questions, don't we? Uh, as a pastor, sometimes we set up times where we have uh, questions and answers. And we get a lot of questions. Why this? Why that? Any question that you ask that starts with why, I'm just telling you those are the tough ones. Those are the tough ones because it's not always clear. The Lord makes very clear what he did or what he will do based on what we do in certain situations. But why doesn't always show up. Job wanted to know why everything happened to him. You never read that he got an answer. God ultimately just said, quit whining. And he's like, okay, sorry. He never really told him why. People say the theme of Job, why do the righteous suffer? Well, that's never answered in Job. It's never answered. There's some whys that are hard to get. You know how you get the whys? You get them like Moses got. Exodus 30 and verse, 33 and verse 11. Moses had a special relationship with God. It says that he spoke with God face to face like a man speaks to his friend. You want that kind of a relationship with the Lord? He's going to tell you some secrets. You want that kind of a relationship with the Lord? He's going to show you why he is doing the things that he is doing that otherwise you're like, man, I see what's happening. I have no idea why it's happening. I know Romans 8, 28 is in the Bible, but I can't get my mind around it. How's that working together for good? Have that kind of a relationship with the Lord? Man, that's, that's learning the ways, right? That's what good parents do. Good parents warn their kids of dangers in life. Good parents watch over them for their good. Good parents show them the way to go. And the other key element in biblical training is, number two, this won't take a long time, not just parental, but it's powerful. It's powerful. Verse 20 says, The kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. Now, we all know talk is cheap. Everybody's got something to say. Here the Corinthians are saying, eh, Paul ain't really showing up. In other words, what they're saying don't listen to him. He's, you know, they're, they're acting tough, the Corinthians. But really, they're empty. And can I just tell you, church people are funny. I mean, come on. Church people frequently find themselves thinking, I know a better way. I know you think you know what you're doing, but really, I know a better way. And all that courage musters itself up into circles of gossip. That's all it does. Behind your back to functionally tear down what your blood, sweat, and tears is trying to build up. That happens all the time. It is the definition of unruly behavior. And so we'll look at the other references to being unruly in the scriptures. Titus chapter 1, we were earlier, we'll look again in Titus 1, starting in verse 9. Notice. Holding fast the faithful word, we're again exhorting these bishops what they should do. Holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught. Why? That he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers especially they of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not, for filthy lucre's sake. One of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said, The Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. This witness is true. Wherefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth." The people that were just talk, 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 and they do it for filthy lucre's sake, are hirelings. That's who they are. And so what the Lord calls his faithful bishops, shepherds, not hirelings, to do, is to make sure that they can shut the mouths of those people with their false teaching that damage the flock, who subvert whole households. Rebuke them sharply. Oh, where's the love of Christ in that? 
Well, it's the love of a father towards his child. That's where it's at. The last reference of unruly is in James chapter 3 and verse 8. It shouldn't surprise you. It's talking about the tongue. But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. So Paul says, warn the unruly. Warn the unruly. So this idea of being unruly has to do with carnal believers who like to run their mouths in contradiction to what God's doing in an orderly manner because God has a path for your growth. And the unruly don't get on it. They complain about it. They always got something to say about how it's not necessarily the way that they should go. Let me tell you something. Anytime you try and do something for the Lord, especially train God's people for effective ministry, there's going to be opposition. Let me warn you, there's going to be opposition. The little book of 3 John, one chapter, verses 9 and 10, you got to pay attention to. I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence, there it is, among them receiveth us not. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds which he doeth, prating against us with malicious words, and not content therewith. Neither doth he himself receive the brethren, and forbiddeth them that would, and casteth them out of the church. That's the Corinthians, looking for the preeminence. They're not submissive. They're proud. So in verse 19, Paul responds, and he says, No, I'll come, Lord willing, I mean, you know. And I'm going to confront those guys. But let me tell you, Paul, when he does that, he says, you know what I'm not interested in? I'm not interested in what they got to say. I'm interested in what they've done with their lives. I'm interested in whether they have any power in their lives. I'm interested to see if these guys who are doing all the yapping have got any fruit in their ministry. Because everybody's got a better idea. But the guy who actually has fruit that comes from the Holy Spirit working through them, well, maybe they got something to say. Otherwise, maybe they don't, because that's the real question. Everybody's got a better idea, but who's really getting it done? Who's really producing the disciples? Who's really training the future leaders? Who's really loving and sweating and going through all of the muck and the mire to help you become the man or woman of God you need to be? Those are the people that ought to have a voice, right? The kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. God's people is not staffed by people who talk a good game. It's led by people who live a transformed life, and that life is a life of power. So let's let's define some terms for you. A kingdom is simply a population subject to a king or a monarch, right? So as a result, therefore, (laughs) the kingdom of God is a population of people who are subject to the king of kings the Lord Jesus Christ. That means that they're born again, John chapter 3. That's how you see and enter the kingdom of God by being born again. They're born again by the word of God, 1 Peter chapter 1. It's the seed of the word of God that gives you new life. And the spirit of God dwelling in them, right, that gives them this new life of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost, Romans chapter 14. So it's a spiritual kingdom that is within you, Luke chapter 17. This is the kingdom of God. This is what it is. Such a life, such a kingdom, it's characterized by power. It's not just words. So what is power? Let's say I do a Bible study on power, and we're going to do this very quickly. You've got some references in front of you. What is power associated with in the scriptures? Who possesses it? Well, God does, first and foremost. If it has this kind of power, it's associated with the Lord, of course. And you've got some references there. One is to the Father, one is to the Son, and one is to the Holy Spirit. There's tons of references. Uh, The next one is His Word. His Word is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Uh, The third one is His message. Romans 1.16, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation. And 1 Corinthians 1.18 is the preaching of the cross is powerful. It's powerful. You know what else is powerful? A changed life. The results, 2 Corinthians 4, 7. We have this power in us, right? It's this treasure is inside our earthen vessels. It's a transformed life. That's what it is. The kingdom of God is not just a philosophy 
that men debate with words. It's the real deal. It's life transformation. Talk is cheap. Can I give you some good fatherly advice today? Let the other guys run their mouths about whatever subject that might contradict God's truth about the kingdom of God. You, son, daughter, invest your time, energy, your schedule, your resources, and things that have power. Will you ask yourself, do you have, do you live your life with the power of God on your life? Where does that power come from? The spirit that lives in you, the new life you possess, the word of God abiding in you, the courage to preach the gospel to others? Because that's what biblical ministry training should result in, a transformed life of power that comes from the spirit of God and the word of God working harmoniously in your life. You see, the danger of not learning from your fathers in the faith, well, you're proud. You make up your own way. You're wordy. Always talking, but never really have anything to say. And you're weak. Powerless. 2 Timothy 3.5, Paul warned of it. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. What are you supposed to do when you meet people like that? turn away just let them go don't beat them down don't chase them around just let them go just go just go the way of power just do that we wrap it up with verse 21 and this is my question for you before we finish and pray what will ye church to the corinthians he says shall i come unto you with a rod or in love and in the spirit of meekness like Paul said to the Corinthians, how exactly do you want me to come when I come? You want me to come with a rod? Or do you want me to come in love? You know, how I come is completely dependent on how you respond to what I've just written you. Can I tell you that because what Paul said to the Corinthians was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to a local church, that that's exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ wants you to consider? Because the Lord Jesus Christ is also coming. Because the Lord is willing for him to do so. And when he comes, you have a couple of choices. How do you want him to find you? How do you want to stand before him? Do you want to be humble? Do you want to be meek? Or is he going to have to, as they say, beat the devil out of you? Because those are your choices. So you get on board with the way, you get excited that you're in a place where you can do it, or, you know, hey, roll the dice. It's up to you. But you have been warned. You have been exhorted. And you have been made clear what God has for you. Let's pray together.